Chapter Four of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Four: A Very Rash Visit. My dear father had been killed by the Dunes of Bagworthy while riding home from Porlock Market on the Saturday evening. With him were six brother farmers, all of them very sober, for father would have no company with any man who went beyond half a gallon of beer or a single gallon of cider. The robbers had no grudge against him, for he had never flouted them, neither made overmuch of outcry, because they robbed other people. For he was a man of such strict honesty and due parish feeling that he knew it to be every man's own business to defend himself and his goods, unless he belonged to our parish, and then we must look after him. These seven good farmers were jogging along, helping one another in the troubles of the road, and singing goodly hymns and songs to keep their courage moving, when suddenly a horseman stopped in the starlight full across them. By dress and arms they knew him well, and by his size and stature, shone against the glimmer of the evening star, and though he seemed one man to seven, it was in truth one man to one. Of the six who had been singing songs and psalms about the power of God and their own regeneration, such psalms as went the round in those days of the public houses, there was not one but pulled out his money and sang small beer to a dune. But father had been used to think that any man who was comfortable inside his own coat and waistcoat deserved to have no other set unless he would strike a blow for them. And so, while his gossips doffed their hats and shook with what was left of them, he set his staff above his head and rode at the dune robber. With a trick of his horse the wild man escaped the sudden onset, although it must have amazed him sadly that any durst resist him. Then, when Smiler was carried away with the dash and the weight of my father, not being brought up to battle nor used to turn save in the plough-harness, the outlaw whistled upon his thumb and plundered the rest of the yeomen. But father, drawing at Smiler's head, to try to come back and help them, was in the midst of a dozen men who seemed to come out of a turf-rick, some on horse and some afoot. Nevertheless he smote lustily, so far as he could see, and being of great size and strength, and his blood well up, they had no easy job with him. With the play of his wrist he cracked three or four crowns, being always famous at single-stick, until the rest drew their horses away, and he thought that he was master, and would tell his wife about it. But a man beyond the range of staff was crouching by the peat-stack, with a long gun set to his shoulder, and he got poor father against the sky and I cannot tell the rest of it. Only they knew that Smiler came home, with blood upon his withers, and father was found in the morning dead on the moor, with his ivy-twisted cudgel lying broken under him. Now whether this were an honest fight, God judge betwixt the dunes and me. It was more of woe than wonder, being such days of violence, that mother knew herself a widow, and her children fatherless. Of children there were only three, none of us fit to be useful yet, only to comfort mother by making her to work for us. I, John Ridd, was the eldest, and felt it a heavy thing on me. Next came Sister Annie, with about two years between us, and then the little Eliza. 
Now, before I got home and found my sad loss, and no boy ever loved his father more than I loved mine, mother had done a most wondrous thing, which made all the neighbors say that she must be mad, at least. Upon the Monday morning, while her husband lay unburied, she cast a white hood over her hair, and gathered a black cloak round her, and, taking counsel of no one, set off on foot for the dune-gate. In the early afternoon she came to the hollow and barren entrance, where in truth there was no gate, only darkness to go through. If I get on with this story I shall have to tell of it by and by, as I saw it afterwards, and will not dwell there now. Enough that no gun was fired at her, only her eyes were covered over, and somebody led her by the hand, without any wish to hurt her. A very rough and headstrong road was all that she remembered for she could not think as she wished to do, with the cold iron pushed against her. At the end of this road they delivered her eyes, and she could scarce believe them. For she stood at the head of a deep green valley, carved from out the mountains in a perfect oval, with a fence of sheer rock standing round it, eighty feet or a hundred high, from whose brink black wooded hills swept up to the skyline. By her side a little river glided out from underneath with a soft dark babble, unawares of daylight, then growing brighter, lapsed away and fell into the valley. Then, as it ran down the meadow, alders stood on either marge, and grass was blading out upon it, and yellow tufts of rushes gathered looking at the hurry. But further down, on either bank, were covered houses built of stone, square and roughly cornered, set as if the brook were meant to be the street between them. Only one room high they were, and not placed opposite each other, but in and out as skittles are. Only that the first of all, which proved to be the captain's, was a sort of double house, or rather two houses joined together by a plank bridge over the river. Fourteen cots, my mother counted, all very much of a pattern, and nothing to choose between them unless it were the captain's. Deep in the quiet valley there, away from noise and violence and brawl, save that of the rivulet, any man would have deemed them homes of simple mind and innocence. Yet not a single house stood there but was the home of murder. Two men led my mother down a steep and glittery stairway, like the ladder of a haymow, and thence from the break of the falling water as far as the house of the captain. And there at the door they left her trembling, strung as she was, to speak her mind. Now, after all, what right had she, a common farmer's widow, to take it amiss that men of birth thought fit to kill her husband? And the dunes were of very high birth, as all we clods of Exmoor knew, and we had enough of good teaching now, let any man say the contrary, to feel that all we had belonged of right to those above us. Therefore my mother was half ashamed that she could not help complaining. But after a while, as she said, remembrance of her husband came, and the way he used to stand by her side, and put his strong arm round her, and how he liked his bacon fried, and praised her kindly for it. And so the tears were in her eyes, and nothing should gainsay them. A tall old man, Sir Ensor Doon, came out with a bill-hook in his hand, Hedger's gloves going up his arms, as if he were no better than a labourer at ditch-work. Only in his mouth and eyes, his gait, and most of all his voice, even a child could know and feel that here was no ditch-labourer. 
Good cause he has found since then, perhaps, to wish that he had been one. With his white locks moving upon his coat, he stopped and looked down at my mother, and she could not help herself but curtsy under the fixed black gazing. "'Good woman, you are none of us. Who has brought you hither? Young men must be young, but I have had too much of this work.' And he scowled at my mother for her comeliness, and yet looked under his eyelids as if he liked her for it. But as for her, in her depth of love-grief, it struck scorn upon her womanhood, and in the flash she spoke. "'What you mean I know not. Traitors, cutthroats, cowards! I am here to ask for my husband!' She could not say any more, because her heart was now too much for her, coming hard in her throat and mouth, but she opened up her eyes at him. "'Madam,' said Sir Insur Doon, being born a gentleman, although a very bad one, I crave pardon of you. My eyes are old, or I might have known. Now, if we have your husband prisoner, he shall go free without ransoms, because I have insulted you." "'Sir,' said my mother, being suddenly taken away with sorrow because of his gracious manner, "'please to let me cry a bit.' He stood away, and seemed to know that women want no help for that, and by the way she cried he knew that they had killed her husband. Then, having felt of grief himself, he was not angry with her, but left her to begin again. "'Loth would I be,' said mother, sobbing with her new red handkerchief, and looking at the pattern of it, "'loth indeed, Sir Ensordoon, to accuse any one unfairly. But I have lost the very best husband God ever gave to a woman, and I knew him when he was to your belt, and I not up to your knee, sir.' and never an unkind word he spoke, nor stopped me short in speaking. All the herbs he left to me, and all the bacon curing, and when it was best to kill a pig, and how to treat the maidens, not that I would ever wish. Oh, John, it seems so strange to me, and last week you were everything." Here mother burst out crying again, not loudly, but turning quietly, because she knew that no one now would ever care to wipe the tears and fifty or a hundred things of weekly and daily happening came across my mother, so that her spirit fell like slackening lime. "'This matter must be seen to. It shall be seen to at once,' the old man answered, moved a little in spite of all his knowledge. "'Madam, if any wrong has been done, trust the honour of a dune. I will redress it to my utmost. Come inside and rest yourself while I ask about it. What was your good husband's name, and when and where fell this mishap?" "'Deary me,' said mother, as he set a chair for her, very polite, but she would not sit upon it. "'Saturday morning I was a wife, sir, and Saturday night I was a widow, and my children fatherless. My husband's name was John Ridd, sir, as everybody knows, and there was not a finer or better man in Somerset or Devon. He was coming home from Porlock Market and a new gown for me on the crupper, and a shell to put my hair up. Oh, John, how good you were to me!" Of that she began to think again, and not to believe her sorrow, except as a dream from the evil one, because it was too bad upon her, and perhaps she would awake in a minute, and her husband would have the laugh of her. And so she wiped her eyes and smiled, and looked for something. "'Madam, this is a serious thing,' Sir Ensordoon said graciously, and showing grave concern. My boys are a little wild, I know, and yet I cannot think that they would willingly harm any one. And yet, and yet you do look wronged. 
"'Send Counselor to me!' he shouted from the door of his house, and down the valley went the call. "'Send Counselor to Captain!' Counselor Doone came in ere yet my mother was herself again, and if any sight could astonish her when all her sense of right and wrong was gone astray with the force of things, it was the sight of the counselor, a square-built man of enormous strength, but a foot below the Doone stature, which I shall describe hereafter. He carried a long gray beard descending to the leather of his belt. Great eyebrows overhung his face like ivy on a pollard oak and under them two large brown eyes, as of an owl when muting. And he had a power of hiding his eyes, or showing them bright like a blazing fire. He stood there with his beaver off, and mother tried to look at him, but he seemed not to descry her. "'Counselor,' said Sir Ensor Doone, standing back in his height from him, "'here is a lady of good repute—' "'Oh, no, sir, only a woman.' "'Allow me, madam, by your good leave.' Here is a lady, counsellor, of great repute in this part of the country, who charges the dunes with having unjustly slain her husband. "'Murdered him! Murdered him!' cried my mother. "'If ever there was a murder! Oh, sir, oh, sir, you know it!' "'The perfect rights and truth of the case is all I wish to know,' said the old man very loftily. "'And justice shall be done, madam.' "'Oh, I pray you, pray you, sirs, make no matter of business of it. God from heaven, look on me. Put the case, said the counsellor. The case is this, replied Sir Ensor, holding one hand up to mother. This lady's worthy husband was slain, it seems, upon his return from the market at Porlock, no longer ago than last Saturday night. Madam, amend me if I am wrong. "'No longer, indeed, indeed, sir. Sometimes it seems a twelve-month, and sometimes it seems an hour.' "'Cite his name,' said the counsellor, with his eyes still rolling inwards. "'Master John Ridd, as I understand. Counsellor, we have heard of him often, a worthy man and a peaceful one, who meddled not with our duties. Now, if any of our boys have been rough, they shall answer it dearly. And yet I can scarce believe it, for the folk about these parts are apt to misconceive of our sufferings, and to have no feeling for us. Counselor, you are our record, and very stern against us. Tell us how this matter was. "'Oh, Counselor!' my mother cried. "'Sir Counselor, you will be fair. I see it in your countenance. Only tell me who it was, and set me face to face with him, and I will bless you, sir, and God shall bless you and my children.' The square man with the long grey beard, quite unmoved by anything, drew back to the door and spoke, and his voice was like a fall of stones in the bottom of a mine. Few words will be enow for this. Four or five of our best-behaved and most peaceful gentlemen went to the little market at Porlock with a lump of money. They bought some household stores and comforts at a very high price, and pricked upon the homeward road, away from vulgar revellers. When they drew bridle to rest their horses, in the shelter of a peat-rick, the night being dark and sudden, a robber of great size and strength rode into the midst of them, thinking to kill or terrify. His arrogance and hardihood at the first amazed them, but they would not give up without a blow goods which were on trust with them. He had smitten three of them senseless, for the power of his arm was terrible, whereupon the last man tried to ward his blow with a pistol. 
Carver, sir, it was, our brave and noble Carver, who saved the lives of his brethren and his own, and glad and now they were to escape. Notwithstanding, we hoped it might be only a flesh wound, and not to speed him in his sins. As this atrocious tale of lies turned up joint by joint before her, like a devil's coach-horse, mother was too much amazed to do any more than look at him, as if the earth must open. But the only thing that opened was the great brown eyes of the counsellor, which rested on my mother's face with a dew of sorrow, as he spoke of sins. Author's note on Devil's Coach Horse. The cocktailed beetle has earned this name in the west of England. She, unable to bear them, turned suddenly on Sir Ensor, and caught, as she fancied, a smile on his lips, and a sense of quiet enjoyment. "'All the dunes are gentlemen,' answered the old man gravely, and looking as if he had never smiled since he was a baby. "'We are always glad to explain, madam, any mistake which the rustic people may fall upon about us, and we wish you clearly to conceive that we do not charge your poor husband with any set purpose of robbery, neither will we bring suit for any attainder of his property. Is it not so, counsellor? "'Without doubt his land is attainted, unless is mercy you forbear, sir.' Counselor, we will forbear. Madam, we will forgive him. Like enough he knew not right from wrong, at that time of night. The waters are strong at Porlock, and even an honest man may use his staff unjustly in this unchartered age of violence and rapine. "'The dunes to talk of rapine!' Mother's head went round so that she curtsied to them both, scarcely knowing where she was, but calling to mind her manners. All the time she felt a warmth, as if the right was with her, and yet she could not see the way to spread it out before them. With that she dried her tears in haste, and went into the cold air, for fear of speaking mischief. But when she was on the homeward road, and the sentinels had charge of her, blinding her eyes, as if she were not blind enough with weeping, some one came in haste behind her, and thrust a heavy leathern bag into the limp weight of her hand. "'Captain sends you this,' he whispered. "'Take it to the little ones.' But mother let it fall in a heap, as if it had been a blind worm, and then for the first time crouched before God that even the dunes should pity her. End of chapter 4 Recording by Michelle Harris